Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Doctrine and Covenants of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Even though this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort has been made to be as doctrinally and historically accurate as possible. Every day a new section of the Doctrine and Covenants will be released. I hope that you'll visit this often and be able to share this uh, with your friends. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Doctrine and Covenants podcast. This is going to be for section 27. Section 27. Let me read the heading first. Revelation given to Joseph Smith the prophet at Harmony, Pennsylvania, August of 1830. In preparation for a religious service at which the sacrament of bread and wine was to be administered, Joseph set out to procure wine. He was met by a heavenly messenger and received this revelation, a portion of which was written at the time and the remainder in the September following. Water is now used instead of wine in the sacramental services of the church. Here's a couple of other introductory uh, comments. Early in the month of August of 1830, Joseph Smith stated, Newell Knight and his wife paid us a visit at my place in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and as neither his wife nor mine had had been as yet confirmed, it was proposed that we should confirm them and partake together of the sacrament before he and his wife should leave us. In order to prepare for this, I set out to procure some wine for the occasion, but had gone only a short distance when I was met by a heavenly messenger and received the following revelation, the first four paragraphs of which were written at this time in the remainder in the September following. Why was the sacrament administered at this time? Emma was baptized in June of 1830, and Joseph was soon after that arrested. Emma had not had the opportunity to obtain the sacrament and be confirmed a member of the church. Newell Knight's wife had also been baptized but not confirmed. This revelation was given as a result of this circumstance. Verse 1, listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Lord, your God, and your Redeemer, whose word is quick and powerful. For behold, I say unto you that it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when ye partake of the sacrament. Elder David B. Haight said, It took a number of years before the congregations of the saints totally abolished the use of wine in the sacrament, but by the end of President Brigham Young's administration, the use of water for the sacrament was generally the practice. The point of the revelation was that the sacrament be partaken with an eye single to the glory of God. Continuing the verse, If it so be that ye do it with an eye single to to my glory, remembering unto the Father my body which was laid down for you, and my blood which was shed for the remission of your sins. The focus of the sacrament should always be the Savior and not what we eat or drink for the sacrament. Substitution of bread and water should be if there is no other choice. The sacrament is a unifying ordinance. We We all participate together in it and focus on the Savior. Verse 3, Wherefore, a commandment I give unto you, that you shall not purchase wine, neither strong drink of your enemies. Wherefore, you shall partake of none, except it be made new among you. It's possible that the phrase new wine means grape juice, but consider that the church continued to use fermented sacramental wine, both in Kirtland and Nauvoo. Yea, in this my Father's kingdom, which shall be built up on the earth, the sacrament, for the most part, points us back to the atonement of Christ, but should also cause us to look forward to the time when we will partake of the sacrament in the sacrament meeting with the Savior just prior to his second coming. This meeting will be held at Adam on Diamond. Verse 5, Behold, this is wisdom in me, wherefore marvel not, for the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. In the judgment of many students of the Doctrine and Covenants, these verses are descriptive of the great meeting yet to be held at Adam on Diamond. Expressing this view, Elder McConkie wrote as follows, Before the Lord Jesus descends openly and publicly in the clouds of glory, attended by all the hosts of heaven before the great and dreadful day of the Lord sends terror and destruction from one end of the earth to the other, 
Before he stands on Mount Zion or sets his feet on Olivet or utters his voice from an American Zion or a Jewish Jerusalem, before all flesh shall see him together, before any of his appearances which taken together comprise the second coming of the Son of God, before all these there is to be a secret appearance to selected members of his church. He will come in private to his prophet and to the apostles then living. Those who have held keys and powers and authorities in all ages from Adam to the present will also be present. And further, all the faithful members of the church then living and all the faithful saints of all the ages past will be present. It will be the greatest congregation of faithful saints ever assembled on planet earth. It will be a sacrament meeting. It will be a day of judgment for the faithful of all ages. And it will take place in Davies County, Missouri at a place called Adam on Diamond. With reference to the use of sacramental wine in our day, the Lord said to Joseph Smith, You shall partake of none, except it be made new among you. Yea, in this my Father's kingdom, which shall be built up on the earth. And so stating, he is picking up the language he used in the upper room. Then he says, The hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. Jesus is going to partake of the sacrament again with, the, with his mortal disciples on earth, but it will not be with mortals only. He names others who will be present and who will participate in the sacred ordinance. These include Moroni, Elias, John the Baptist, Elijah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, Peter, James, and John, and also with Michael or Adam, the father of all, the prince of all, the ancient of days. Each of these is named simply by way of illustration. The grand summation of the whole matter comes in these words, and also with all those whom my Father hath given me out of the world. The sacrament is to be administered in a future day on this earth when the Lord Jesus is present, and when all the righteous of all ages are present. This, of course, will be a, a part of the grand council at Adam on Diamond. Again, that was by Bruce R. McConkie. At the Last Supper, when Jesus instituted the sacrament, he explained the symbolism of the wine that the apostles drank, saying, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Doctrine and Covenant states that Moroni will be in attendance at that meeting. The verses that follow expand the list of those who are invited to partake of the sacrament with the Savior to include all those who have been faithful in their testimony of him. Continuing the verse, and with Moroni, to whom, or whom I have sent unto you to reveal the Book of Mormon, contain the fullness of my everlasting gospel, to whom I have committed the keys of the record of the stick of Ephraim, or the Book of Mormon. If Lehi was a descendant of Manasseh, why is the Book, Book of Mormon called the stick of Ephraim? Joseph Filling Smith said, It is true that Lehi was a descendant of Manasseh, uh, but the Nephites were just as much the descendants of Ephraim, for we know that Ishmael, who was the other founder of the colony, was a descendant of Ephraim. This we learn from Joseph Smith, but it is not so stated in the Book of Mormon. This information was contained in the 116 pages of lost manuscript, which was not re retranslated into the Book of Mormon. You are aware of the fact that the sons of Lehi married the daughters of Ishmael. Now, if you will carefully analyze this verse, you will discover that it positively states that this stick, which is the stick of Joseph, thus covering both tribes, is in the hand of Ephraim. The record after its presentation to the prophet Joseph Smith was placed in the hand of Ephraim, for Joseph Smith was of Ephraim. The Book of Mormon is as much the stick of Ephraim as it is of Manasseh, because both Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph. The record of Joseph is now in the hand of Ephraim, so far as the fulfillment of the prophecy is concerned. It becomes the record of Ephraim, for the Latter-day Saints are, in the main, of Ephraim. Verse 6, And also with Elias, to whom I have committed the keys of bringing to pass the restoration of all things, spoken, of, spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began concerning the last days. 
Correcting the Bible by the spirit of revelation, the prophet restored a statement of John the Baptist, which says that Christ is the Elias who was to restore all things. By revelation, we are also informed that the Elias who was to restore all things is the angel Gabriel, who was known in mortality as Noah. From the same authentic source, we also learn that the promised Elias is John the, ba- is John the Revelator. Thus, there are three different revelations which name Elias as being three different persons. What are we to conclude? By finding answer to the question, by whom uh, has the restoration been affected, we, we shall find who Elias is and find there is no problem in harmonizing these apparently contradictory revelations. Who has restored all things? Was it one man? Certainly not. Many angelic ministrants have been sent from the courts of glory to confer keys and, and powers to commit their dispensations and glories again to men on earth. At least the following have come. Moroni, John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John, Moses, Elijah, Elias, Gabriel, Raphael, and Michael. Since it is apparent that no one messenger has carried the whole burden of the restoration, but rather that each has come with a specific endowment from on high, it becomes clear that Elias is a composite personage. The expression must be understood that a name and a title for those whose mission it is to commit keys and powers to men in this dispensation. Uh, verse 7, And also John, the son of Zacharias, which Zacharias is he, Elias, visited and gave promise that he should have a son and his name should be John, and he should be filled with the spirit of Elias. Joseph Healing Smith said it was Gabriel who appeared to Zacharias and promised him a son and who appeared to Mary and announced the coming of the Son of God as recorded by Luke. It was also Gabriel as an Elias who is mentioned in the Doctrine and Covenants and, and was Gabriel or Noah who stands next to Michael or Adam in the priesthood. Verse 8, which John I have sent unto you, my servants Joseph Smith Jr. and Oliver Cowdery, to ordain you unto the first priesthood which you have received, that you might be called and ordained even as Aaron, and also Elijah, unto whom I have committed the keys of the power of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, that the whole earth may not be smitten with a curse. Now the restoration from Elijah won't happen until 1836. And also with Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, your fathers, by whom the promises remain, and also with Michael or Adam, the father of all, the prince of all, the ancient of days, and also with Peter, James, and John, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you, and confirmed you to be apostles and special witnesses of my name, and bear the keys of your ministry and of the same things which I have revealed unto them." This text confirms the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, for which we have no date or official account. Erastus Snow, who served as an apostle for nearly 40 years, gives the following account of the restoration of the higher priesthood. In due course of time, as we read in the history which he, Joseph Smith, has left, Peter, James, and John appeared to him. It was at a period when they were being pursued by their enemies, and they had to travel all night. And in the dawn of the coming day, when they were weary and worn, who should appear to them but Peter, James, and John, for the purpose of conferring upon them the apostolic, or the apostleship, the keys of the keys of which they themselves had held while upon the earth, which had been bestowed upon them by the Savior. This priesthood conferred upon them by those three messengers embraces within it all offices of the priesthood from the highest to the lowest. As has been often taught us that the keys of the presidency of this apostleship represent the highest authority conferred upon man in the flesh. And by virtue of these keys of priesthood, the prophet Joseph from time to time proceeded to ordain and set in order the revelation or the priesthood in its various quorums as we see it today in the church. Addison Everett uh, said that uh, Joseph Smith said that at Colesville, New York in 1829, he and Oliver were under arrest on a charge of deceiving the people. 
when they were at the justice's house for trial in the evening, all were waiting for Mr. Reed, Joseph's lawyer. While waiting, the justice uh, asked Joseph some questions, among which was this. What was the first miracle Jesus performed? Joseph replied, he made this world, and what followed we are not told. Mr. Reed came in and said he wanted to speak to his clients in private and that the laws allowed him that privilege, he believed. The judge pointed to a door to a room in the back part of the house and told them to step in there. As soon as they got into the room, the lawyer said there was a mob outside in front of the house. If they get hold of you, they will perhaps do you bodily injury, and I think the best way for you to get out of this is to get ri- is to get right out of here. Pointing to the window and hoisting it, they got into the woods and going a few rods from the house. It was night, and they traveled through brush and water and mud, fell over logs, etc., until Oliver was exhausted. Then Joseph helped him along through the mud and water, almost carrying him. They traveled all night, and just at the break of day, Oliver gave out entirely and exclaimed, O Lord, Brother Joseph, how long have we got to endure this thing? They sat down on a log to rest, and Joseph said that at the very time Peter, James, and John came to them and ordained them to the apostleship, they had 16 or 17 miles to go to get back to Mr. Hales, his father-in-law's, but Oliver did not complain any more of fatigue. Verse 13, unto whom I have committed the keys of my kingdom. Peter, James, and John committed three things to Joseph and Oliver, the Melchizedek priesthood, the keys of that priesthood, meaning the right to preside over all of its functions and offices, and the keys of the dispensation of the fullness of times. The holding of such keys is properly referred to as the apostleship, for keys are the distinctive characteristic in that office. Continuing verse 13, and a dispensation of the gospel for the last times and for the fullness of times in the which I will gather together in one all things, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Now the thing to be known is what the fullness of times means or the extent or authority thereof. It means this, that the dispensation of the fullness of times is made up of all the dispensations that ever have been given since the world began until this time. Unto Adam first was given a dispensation. It is well known that God spake to him with his own voice in the garden and gave him the promise of the Messiah. And unto Noah also was a dispensation given, for Jesus said, As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall also be in the days of the Son of Man. And as the righteous were saved then, and the wicked destroyed, so it will be now. And from Noah to Abraham, and from Abraham to Moses, and from Moses to Elias, and from Elias to John the Baptist, and from then to Jesus Christ, and from Jesus Christ to Peter, James, and John, the apostles, all received in their time a dispensation by revelation from God to accomplish the great scheme of restitution spoken of by all the holy prophets since the world began, the end of which is the dispensation of the fullness of times, in in the which all things shall be fulfilled that have been spoken of since the earth was made. Verse 14. And also with all, this means all faithful members of the church, hopefully that's us too, right? Those whom my Father hath given me out of the world. This verse constitutes the invitation to all faithful Latter-day Saints to attend the great sacrament meeting over which the Savior will preside in Adam on Diamond. Elder McConkie said, The concept of a chosen and favored people, a concept scarcely known in the world and but little understood even by the saints of God, is one of the most marvelous systems ever devised for administering salvation to all men in all nations of all, in all ages. This is the doctrine of election. They were true and faithful in the pre-mortal life, and they earned the right to be born as the Lord's people and to have the privilege on a preferential basis of believing and obeying the word of truth. Believing blood, the blood of Abraham, flows in their veins. They are the ones on whom Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 
Verse 15, Wherefore, lift up your hearts and rejoice and gird up your loins and take upon you my whole armor that ye may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all that ye may be able to stand. Since Satan wants to keep us from attending this sacrament meeting, the Lord here is telling us how to arm ourselves against Satan to remain worthy of attending this solemn and sacred meeting. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which I have sent mine angels to commit unto you. Taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of my spirit. Francis Lyman said, By observance of the laws of the Lord we are led in the straight and narrow way, and the Holy Spirit alone can keep us there. We have power so to live that the Spirit of the Lord may dwell with us. We cannot be Latter-day Saints without the Spirit of the Lord and should not try to live without it. Do not try to speak without the Spirit of the Lord. Do not try to build up the kingdom of God without the direction of His Spirit. If we endeavor to do these things by our own wisdom, we will be sure to go astray and make mistakes. It is the office and calling of the Spirit of the Lord to dwell with you always to be in your homes, with your families, in your neighborhoods, and in your business affairs on the Sabbath day and throughout the week and every day in the year if you do right. Continuing verse 18, which I will pour out upon you and my word which I reveal unto you and be agreed as touching all things whatsoever ye ask of me. There is a strength in unified prayer that is not found otherwise. This is a great example for husband and wife to be unified in their, up, in their lives together. Continuing the verse, and be faithful until I come and ye shall be caught up that where I am ye shall be also. Amen. We now come to the key or the specific counsel that if followed faithfully will permit us to stand as Joseph Smith did and not fall as Sidney Rigdon did. All of us who want to be faithful and stand against the enemies of truth and right should, should internalize section, or verses 15 to 18 of section 27 and also study Ephesians 6, 8, or 10 to 18 in the New Testament. We may all stand faithfully and overcome the things of this world and be saved at the Lord's coming and partake of the sacrament with him if we put on God's whole armor and keep it on. No one can escape the battle. Satan makes war upon each servant of the Lord. To stand successfully and come off conqueror, we must wear the armor of the Lord. The six parts of the spiritual armor that we are to wear are enumerated. The first part of the armor mentioned is the girdle of armor that goes about the loins. The armor of truth. An ancient soldier wore a girdle of physical armor about his loins to protect vital parts of his body. A servant of the Lord wears the spiritual armor of truth to protect his virtue. Harold B. Lee wrote, Truth is to be the substance of which the girdle about your loins is to be formed if your virtue and vital strength is to be safeguarded. The next part of the armor mentioned is the breastplate of righteousness. One of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We cannot build Zion without being pure in heart. To be pure in heart, we must keep impurities out. That is done by wearing the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness means meeting the standards of that which is morally right and just. The saints are next admonished to have their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Again, Elder Lee says, commenting upon this part of God's armor, your feet, which are to represent your goals or objectives in life, are to be shod. Shod with what? With the preparation of the gospel of peace. He, Apostle Paul, knew that preparedness is the way to victory and that eternal vigilance is the price of safety. Fear is the penalty of unpreparedness and aimless dawdling over an endless dawdling aimless dawdling with opportunity. The Latter-day Saint who would ward off Satan's fiery darts, flaming arrows, takes the shield of faith. When persecution, heartbreak, temptation, disappointment, and illness, etc. come into the life of a Latter-day Saint, the first thing he should do is get behind the shield of faith. 
He must let the Lord help him. If he does not, then Satan's fiery darts may wound him spiritually. Some have sustained so many wounds that their recovery is lengthy, and there are some who have never recovered. That which is to protect our mind, our ability to think properly, is the helmet of salvation. Wilford Woodruff said that Oliver Cowdery at one time had a powerful testimony, but he yielded to the temptations of the evil one. Oliver began to think that he was smarter than Joseph Smith and wanted to direct the prophet. Thus, Oliver apostatized. We are all grateful to Oliver Cowdery for the great contributions he made to the church. It is tragic that he did not keep the helmet of salvation in place. His thinking deviated from the truth first, and soon his actions followed. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is another part of the armor which we are to wear. The Lord never intended that His servants, His soldiers, fight only a defensive battle. His desire is that we be on the offensive and keep o- and help overcome evil, free mankind from the terrible effects of evil, and prepare the earth for the return of the Savior. The sword is primarily an offensive weapon. We are to take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, thus we are to study the Scriptures, listen to the voices of the living prophets, and have the companionship of the Holy Ghost as we move forward in God's service. One who wears God's whole armor is happy and confident in the battle against evil. One who does not is devastated by the struggle. We must wear the armor always throughout life, keep it polished through service, and keep it in good repair through repentance. That was by Leon Hartshorn. I bear testimony that these things are true and that as we keep uh, the armor of God upon us, that we will be worthy to attend this great sacrament meeting, which will be to sustain the Savior as King of King and Lord of Lords at the meeting at Adam on Diamond, and bear that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. So long.